Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Beached White Male Podcast. My name is Ken Kemp, and I'm your host for Season 4 and Episode 64. Today, I've invited back an author, journalist, and poet who's been on our podcast before. It's a return visit from Rick Pidcock. He just keeps on writing for Baptist News Global, and I love his stuff. But the articles that made me chase Rick down are the pieces that he wrote about Andy Stanley in a conference that he put together, an event at his church he called the Unconditional Conference. I'll bet you heard about it. It was designed specifically for the parents whose children have come out as queer or LGBTQ. Rick wrote about that conference, and we talked about it. Also, about Andy's critics, and then about what Rick calls father wounds. I think for me, I can speak to the experience of growing up as a young evangelical boy. And I know that in, in those worlds, there's this view of masculinity that is like this cowboy Jesus and John Wayne masculinity. Boys want the affirmation of their fathers. And so you grow up and you kind of live into this ideal. Like I remember, um, for me, I wasn't even allowed to watch Mr. Rogers because he would talk about his feelings and that's just not something Mm. that men do. Wow. Rick was restricted from watching Mr. Rogers. My goodness. Well, you'll remember from my last conversation with Rick that Rick is a Bob Jones graduate. And by the time he graduated and got some experience as a pastor in a church, he knew he needed to go to seminary to explore more deeply his theological and social and political questions. Rick has emerged, I think, as an effective critic of high-demand religion and the kind of religion that has led people to the political right and embracing complementarianism and patriarchy. He's a full-time writer, a stay-at-home dad, and father to five great kids. I'm glad you joined us today for another great talk on the Beach White Male Podcast. So let me just say it again. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad you joined us today, especially if you're with us for the first time. Special welcome to you. I hope that you will get a sense that you are not alone in your struggle and know that you've got company. I want to say thanks, too, to the others of you who just keep on tuning in and giving me great feedback. I appreciate it so much. Today, we're going to pick up on a theme that we've talked about more than once on our podcast. We've talked about the pain and the injury that has been inflicted on the queer and LGBTQ community through the years. And it got my attention when Andy Stanley decided to do something about it. He's a well-known evangelical, but he's a thoughtful evangelical. He thinks, he reads books, and he has challenged the church to broaden its view of what it means to engage the world we live in. So no surprise when he put on a conference that has drawn significant criticism. My friend Rick Pidcock wrote two articles in Baptist News Global that got my attention. I knew I wanted to talk to him about this. Andy Stanley expressed his deep concern for the ways in which the church has been complicit in creating family conflict that causes parents to choose between their church and their theology 
over their own children. In Rick's article, he noted the blowback to Andy Stanley for what he did. A lot of it coming from what is popularly known in our world as the the Theo Bros, the heresy police, what David Dark described as the faith cartel, these mostly guys who just can't help themselves. They go after anybody who wants to see outside the boundaries that are drawn by this high-demand religion we talked about earlier. I really appreciated what Rick said about the conference and also addressed those who criticized Stanley for what he did. Guys like Al Moeller and Focus on the Family. And then others like Mark Driscoll and R.C. Sproul, who in their teaching and preaching just make way for toxic masculinity. Rick and I share our own journeys and our capacity to change our minds. He traces his own journey back to his own father wounds. It's full disclosure. And I'm guessing that you are struggling with these very same things. So I'm glad you've joined us today for my conversation with Rick Pidcock. Let's get to it. All right, everybody. I'm glad to say that I have Rick Pidcock back on the line. Uh, He was a he, he was a great conversation in our first encounter, so it's a return visit. Welcome back, Rick Pidcock. Pidcock, so glad to have you on the podcast. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for inviting me back. Yeah, I've been enjoying your stuff, um, and I know uh, you're a busy guy. You, you're, you're writing like crazy. You're creating lots of content, uh, and you're also, you got a bunch of kids. You've you got a big family that you're chasing down, too. Yep, stay-at-home dad for five kids, and it's a little easier now because I went through seminary as in that role with them crawling all over me, and uh, <laughs> started writing while all that was going on too. And it's a little easier to concentrate now that I've got them in public school. So, so how long has it been since you knocked down that MDiv? It was actually a master's degree. It was uh, what was that? Twenty twenty-one, I believe. Was when oh, I okay. So, yeah. yeah. So, so you did that uh, while you were caring for your kids and you're developing your writing ability and uh, just love the stuff. In fact, we're going to have a link to uh, your, the archives with uh, Baptist News Global, which uh, is a, it's a website I found a couple of years ago. And I, I frankly, I was surprised to find myself relating so much to anything that had the name Baptist in it. Uh, <laughs> But but there's some just great stuff in there, including your stuff. It's a, a much more progressive kind of site that's uh, uh, that, that's related in so many ways to what we're doing on our podcast. But um, uh, we'll we'll uh, send our folks there and get a chance to look at what you've been doing here lately. It's been great stuff. But you know what? I want to start by saying, um, you know, what you and I share in common, Rick, is. Um, you come out of a very conservative background. We talked about it in our last uh, podcast. Uh, and and you have become, I think, an analyst and critic of this uh, evangelicalism that has really become uh, the, uh, equivalent to Trumpism. And uh, I just totally relate to that. And uh, some people might think this is just sort of theoretical, that we're just reacting to our own background. But Gosh, we just elected. We just seen now that the House of Representatives 
representatives have elected a new Speaker of the House, and he comes right out of this tradition. His name is Mike Johnson. Have you been watching that, Rick? I've I've kept my eye on it a little bit, and I don't know a, a ton about him, but I do know that he's widely celebrated by the New Apostolic Reformation that was heavily involved with the January 6th insurrection attempt. And yes. I know he's he's also written in support of criminalizing homosexuality in the past, which is something right. that Albert Mueller has also supported. And and then um, I thought it was interesting. I, I posted on Facebook the other day. He said he said um, he said some people are called to pastoral ministry and others to music ministry. I was called to legal ministry. And that word legal ministry just kind of it's it's a bit of a red flag when you're talking about especially when you're talking about Christian nationalists, like what does that even mean? And and and, and you know, going back to like kind of our background and everything with Al Mohler, you know, it's important to respond to Al Mohler and and you know, these guys who Johnson who who come out with these things because these aren't just the the pastors that raised us that we're upset at, like these guys actually have actual power. And now, yes. you know, they're in the speaker of the house. Speaker of the house. And, uh, you know, I haven't, I haven't checked, but I've got to believe he comes right out of the federalist society, you know, which is, um, which has kind of taken over the Supreme court and so many federal judgeships, uh, thanks to our former president. And, um, and so, so it's, uh, it's all very real. It's very real. Rick, I, before we jump into this, I wonder if you just give us just a thumbnail sketch of your background for folks who maybe are listening for the first time, and then we'll get a more in-depth uh, view of all that by referring people back to our first conversation. But just tell us a little bit about where you come from and what got you here and what got you writing. Yeah, definitely. So I grew up in the independent fundamental Baptist world that thought that Southern Baptists were too liberal and you know, even John <laughs> MacArthur was too liberal. And uh, and then basically, I went to college at Bob Jones University. Became a bit more conservative evangelical at that point, where you know I would have loved people like the Gospel Coalition or Al Mohler, and you know very conservative Calvinistic theology, but with some more contemporary styles of music and stuff. And and I led worship in those circles for fifteen years. I moved out to Denver to plant a church and. Um, was part of a mega church here in South Carolina as well, and and then we went through a worship school that, uh, um, with the attention of, of of developing my worship leading skills more, and they told us that we needed to have God awareness and self awareness. And I thought, well, my God awareness is totally fine. I don't have any questions, but I'd never thought about self awareness before. Mm. And mm. they basically started walking us through our wonders and wounds and different things like that, and. And I started to realize that I I didn't I had no idea how deeply hurt I was from growing mm. up and from my time mm. in the church and and then I started realizing how much of my theology was fueling a lot of those wounds too and so eventually I came to the point where I felt free to ask the questions I had been suppressing went to seminary as part of that journey too and ended up really enjoying the writing. So we left the church and I kind of transitioned to more of my spiritual exploration in writing rather than in leading worship. 
Well, in the articles we're going to talk about today, I, I think we get uh, even a deeper insight to this whole thing of father wounds. And that was actually the article that uh, that prompted me uh, reaching out to you again. It was a little while ago that you wrote the first one, and then you wrote part one, and then you wrote part two, and you get into some pretty open and full disclosure about your own journey and your encounters with some of these figures uh, that dominate the the, the world that uh, both of you and I have been, <laughs> I'll say, overexposed to, and um, uh, so let's let's go ahead and uh, and dive into that. I think Rick, that you know about uh, Tim Whitaker, right, the podcaster. Yes, New Evangelicals, and you know that he. Um, he actually showed up at Andy Stanley's unconditional conference and he did a podcast, which, you know, maybe you heard, uh, but he uh, gave us kind of an insider look at what actually happened there. And you talk about it in your two articles uh, uh, because what Andy Stanley was really trying to do is he's trying to open the door and say, we need to have the conversation. He even invited, I think, a gay married, a same-sex married couple to address the conference, uh, which created quite a stir, but there's a concern for these LGBTQ kids. And you started by um, uh, uh, writing a sentence that I just want to read because it really kind of identifies what we're talking about here, particularly in light of what we've mentioned about father wounds. You said LGBTQ kids who grow up in conservative evangelical families tend to have father wounds because evangelicals view LGBTQ people as given over by God to a reprobate mind for the degrading of their bodies, and therefore, and here's the key, they are eternally condemned. Um, talk about talk about wounds. So, so tell us a little bit how you kind of came to that, and 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 how you uh, came to writing this article about father wounds. Yeah, definitely, and. I think for me, I can speak to the experience of growing up as a young evangelical boy. And I know that in, in those worlds, there's this view of masculinity that is like this cowboy Jesus and John Wayne masculinity, you know, where you've got to, you dress a certain way, you carry yourself a certain way, you're a leader, you're this rugged man and everything. And so just as humans, boys want to, they want, they want the affirmation of their fathers and they want to, you know, be approved of by their fathers. And so you grow up and you kind of live into this ideal. Like I remember, um, for me, I wasn't even allowed to watch Mr. Rogers uh, growing wow. up because he would talk about his feelings and that's just not something mm. that, you know, men do. And so, so you have this, this ideal, the stereotype that you've got to live into. And then you, you start to grow into your own and you realize that a lot of the stuff isn't really you. Like you're not interested in those things as much. Maybe you like to dress differently. Maybe you're, you you start having sexual desires that don't fit into the that mold and so then and then you come to a point where not only do you not measure up but you are actually cursed by being the way that you are because you've been supposedly so self-centered and unthankful in your life according to their interpretation of Romans 1 so you know it's just that's just a lot of weight for young kids to bear 
It is. And I think um, what, what's interesting about the two articles to me, Rick, is that you you really disclosed some pretty personal stuff in there as you navigated that world yourself. And I mean, uh, you know, now you're a dad and you got the five kids and, and, and you're, you're doing all these things, but you're, you're aware of the challenges uh, that so many guys face growing up in this, uh, this patriarchal world, I'm going to call it. So, you know, just for the sake of our listeners who may not be aware Tell us a little bit about what Andy Stanley did when he put on this conference called the Unconditional Conference. Let's talk about the conference first, and then we'll dive into some of the implications of it. Yeah, and and just for full disclosure, I didn't go to the conference. And so if you want like a full exploration of that, I know Tim Whitaker did give it like hours worth of review on that. So yeah, that would be a good conversation did. to to check into. So a lot of my writing on it was more in response to the Sunday sermon that Andy Stanley preached afterwards, where he was kind of explaining what the conference was about and why he decided to host the conference. And, and so, you know, and, 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 and it was kind of a complicated thing because, you know, Andy Stanley, on the one hand, he's having a conversation here that needs to be had and he's uh, he's he's not controlling the conversation. He's giving space to people who even he disagrees with, and yes. and from all accounts, from people who were there, they felt very encouraged by it. And so I want to pass that word along. This is how these people felt who were there, you know. But then Stanley actually he did go on on that Sunday, and he affirmed that he he disapproves of their their sexuality as well. You know, he affirms a traditional Christian marriage. And so I think it's, it's a difficult uh, way. It's difficult for us because we want someone to be all affirming or we want somebody to be all condemning, you know, and, and I think sometimes life just isn't that clean and that's why conversations need to happen. And, and I think it's, it's good to, um, to draw some attention to when these conversations happen and then be able to hold some of those tensions together where people are at in different places. Yeah. As I followed it, it I mean, this is such a difficult time to be a pastor today. We can kind of get into that a little bit, but um, it, it, you know, it's almost like you have to be on one side or the other and uh, whichever of those sides you choose, you're going to lose half of your people, and you just have to to live with that. I mean, trying to draw the middle line is, <laughs> or the middle road, it, it is so so difficult. And I I felt the same way when I heard about what I you know when I heard what he did in the conference, I thought, wow, fantastic, you know, maybe this is a model for other churches to follow who really want to drop their guard and open the door, but no, but these pastors know that if they do. They're going to lose their people, probably lose their job. Um, so, and it, uh, and yeah, and I'll, uh, just to kind of speak to that a little bit, like there's, like if if you take this back fifty years or so to the experience with segregation, like yes. it almost sounds silly to think was there some pastoral middle way to affirm the humanity of black people but still keep them out of your church, you know? Like, that sounds silly, but we do that when it comes to LGBTQ people. Yes. And and so I think um, that that's... It's, it's really difficult to... 
because I don't want to kind of have, you know, one foot on either side of the fence when it comes to affirming people's humanity. Um, but I also have to, if I were alive in the 50s and 60s, and there was a white pastor of an all-white church who allowed a black man or woman to come in and speak to their congregation, um, I might be encouraging of more conversations like that without feeling the need to then go and join that church myself, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, uh, Andy, and I, I don't know exactly when the, the the criticism came, but he knew it was going to come, and that's maybe why he did what he did on that Sunday. But as you point out in your article, Focus on the Family and Al Mohler took him on. Talk a little bit about the criticism that they leveled against An Andy Stanley. Yeah, and it was it was so over the top. Um, the you know the the criticism that they they levied at him. Um, there, you know, Christianity Today said that he seriously undermined a New Testament sexual ethic. Um, they talked about how eternity is at stake, and that's usually whenever there's a really um, whenever there's an abusive conversation going on, usually. Hell is somewhere peeking its head around the corner, you know. Eternity is yeah. at stake. Eternity is at stake. Um, and then they they also said uh, North Point as a whole is implicated. They've invited the censure of Christ Himself. And Al uh, Al Mohler went on and called it a first order crisis, a departure from the faith once delivered to the saints. And and the train has indeed left the station. It kind of had uh, it kind of reminded me of the farewell Rob Bell moment yes. that John Piper yes. gave a decade ago or whatever. So, and we're talking like, you know, just the most extreme language here. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's painful to even hear that stuff because uh, when you and I were swimming in the water, we would hear things like that and go, well, yeah, that's probably right. I mean, it's a hard truth, but, um, uh, but how uh, much damage is being done, and and this doubling down just reinforces people's bigotries and their prejudices, and and legitimizes the kind of treatment that um, that that they give. Um, and like just it, from a, a human conversation standpoint, like let's say we were having a conversation, and you know our emotions throughout this is like you know at a five or so, and then let's say you asked a question, and all of a sudden I was at a twelve. Like, wouldn't you, wouldn't that be a red flag to you that, uh, I may have put my finger on a button here that he's got some issues going on and like, like that's what's happening in these conversations. They, you know, they, they might have some calm conversations about exegeting Philippians, but all of a sudden you mention LGBTQ situation and boom, it's like this, you know, terrifying, infinite, eternal conscious torment panic. And it's like, why are they so insecure? Good, it's a good question, and I think you explore it a little bit uh, in um, uh, in just exploring this whole thing of father wounds. Uh, I'm going to bring up just a name, uh, uh, Mark Driscoll, who's uh, familiar to many of us. Uh, you know, the uh, Christianity Today did, did this whole series on uh, on his journey, uh, but. You know, he went from uh, dispensational to Reformed theology, where he was kind of a champion or at least a, a, a celebrity in the whole Christian or gospel coalition world. Uh, but he seems to have moved on beyond that. Talk a little bit about Mark Driscoll and Father Wounds. 
Yeah, so he was influential in the Acts 29 church planting movement in the 2000s, and that was that was where I was involved with church planting as well, and um, I was around a oh, lot of these right. guys. Yeah, and so, you know, um, these guys were very, they had this macho look to them, this tough guy. You know, I, I G, Mark Driscoll talked about, I want a Jesus who can beat you up, you know, kind of thing. And, and there was all these like mini marks, I would call them where all these other pastors, they wanted to just be like, be just like Mark. They would cuss like Mark, you know, and then look around to see, watch everybody like noticing the fact that they just cussed and everything. And so there, there was a lot of insecurity there. And, and Driscoll, after he kind of, you know, got outed for his spiritual abuse and everything, looking back on that he he said that these were little boys with father wounds who are looking for spiritual fathers and look i'm not i'm not a mark driscoll apologist i think he you know there he's so abusive that you know he has no no um excuse to be in a pulpit but he was right in pointing out that the people who were looking up to him had a lot of father wounds and um, they were looking for someone to correct them and control them, and um, and and I think there was probably more than that. They they also wanted someone to affirm them and love them, and uh, and so I thought that was a it was interesting that he brought that up, and I thought it was definitely related to this conversation. You know, a friend of mine and I uh, went to in Phoenix. We went to hear him preach here about a year ago. Uh, it was shortly after the the Christianity Today Today series, and I literally was wondering, had he learned anything from that? I mean, was he aware at all of the critique that had become so uh, so ubiquitous out there, and and was he making any kinds of adjustments to show that he'd learned something from? all of this. And uh, I have to tell you that after listening to a 50-minute sermon, he's just doubling down. Yeah. And he's really he's re-releasing a lot of uh, videos from his YouTube channel called, uh, he's saying that he's taking them out of the vault. And so it's, it's a lot of very um, abusive sounding language that he's using in a lot of these old sermons. And he's, he's not, I mean, if he was repentant, he wouldn't re-release all of that material. You know, I was intrigued too by your your reference to R.C. Sproul and uh, his his conversation about Jesus on the cross, and this uh, the, you know the whole atonement theory, which uh, you know at least the way it's been uh, uh, perpetrated in the world you and I lived in, you know, it's really not that old. It's uh, it's the, the, this whole focus on Jesus bearing the sins of the world on his shoulders when he was on the cross. And um, uh, I, I'm going to quote R.C. Sproul here. Uh, uh, he basically said that in, at that moment in time, God was saying to his son, Jesus, God damn you, uh, because this holy God cannot possibly be in the presence of sin. Um, and and you, uh, you remembered that line and, uh, and thought, gosh, this is this is. This is harmful stuff. Uh, how did that strike you, Rick? Did yeah, I get I it right? Yeah. Was oh, yeah, close? definitely. Yep. Yep. Yeah. He said that the father is, um, he said, 
uh, and God cursed him, and it was as if there was a cry from heaven, excuse my language, but I can be no more accurate than to say it was as if Jesus heard the words, God damn you, because that's what it meant to be cursed, to be damned, to be under the anathema of the Father. And um, I think that one that resonated with a lot of those Gospel Coalition Acts 29 guys because it it had the little cuss word in it, you know, and so kind of from a little silly point, you know, like, ooh, he's cussing. Um, but then also, like, there's something like this tough guy, father, standing over this dead body um, thing that just resonated with their macho view of masculinity. And really, at the heart of this gospel is a father wound, a God the father mm. wound. So you've got mm. these, you've got all these guys with with physical father wounds. They've got spiritual father wounds from the the Mark Driscolls of the world that they followed. And then they've got God, the father wounds, because really it's all about their view of the gospel. And, um, and, and that's justice to them that God is standing over everyone on the planet saying, God damn you. And Mm. then God is standing over Jesus's body saying, God damn you. And for a few of us, he chooses to let us, you know, off the ground because he's gazing at Jesus' righteousness and Jesus' dead body instead of us. And so, I mean, you think about the insecurity that a child actually would feel in that scenario. You're, you're still not even being seen. You're still not being loved. God's just not actively saying, God damn you, because he's, you know, busy staring at Jesus' dead body instead. And when you began uh, your own journey, Rick, of uh, this discovery that I really haven't paid attention to self-awareness, you know, I've been totally focused on God awareness, and somebody suggested, and I think it was in the context of being an effective worship leader, that not only do you need to be God-aware, but you need to be self-aware, you can't... It came to understand that you were dealing with some of your own father wounds and that you kind of attached yourself to some of these professors and theologians and and pastors um, as father figures, and uh, it didn't work out so well. Tell us a little bit about that. At least that's the way I understood your article. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and that that's where, where a lot of it, it happened was, is, you know, what the affirmation I was looking for, I, I wasn't getting from my father at home and in when this is your gospel this goddamn you gospel you're not really getting it from god the father either and so you know you look for these spiritual fathers these pastors and 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 so i would you know long to be able to be developed by them to uh go to lunch with them to be able to maybe preach for them and and then be affirmed and and coached by them and things like that you know and and because their entire view of reality is a hierarchy, you know, they look down on me and they may not even have realized that's what they were doing. Maybe they lacked self-awareness too, but that's, that's the, the relational structure, the relational framework of that world. And so, you know, over time in a number of ministries that really, um, began to, to hurt and wound me because I felt, I felt very invisible. And I didn't understand why. And now looking back, I realize, oh, that was your invisibility is 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 really a definition of your gospel and about your entire relational framework for reality. 
I think what's so powerful about your insight here, Rick, is that what R.C. Sproul did is he gave us guys permission to look at someone else. And, and by the way, this is just permission to say the word damn, uh, mm-hmm. which, which I guess, you know, for some who are raised in really fundamentalistic churches, wow, I can say damn. Uh, but you know, it's way deeper than that. It, it, he's given us guys permission to, when we encounter what we consider to be sinful in God's eyes, to say, God damn you. And it, it gives us, I think, permission to distance ourselves from the other. Uh, and that may be the most harmful thing of all, besides yeah, and, the personal damage it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you see it. You know, one one kind of one way that you see it is in worship lyrics, and mm. in the way we talk about the way the lyrics talk about the past and the present of evangelicals. So they'll say, "I was an orphan, I was a slave," like, and these are all things that are like the things that you look down on, statuses that you look down on. In ancient hierarchical societies, orphans and slaves were at the bottom, and now I'm a son. Now I'm mm a king. Now I'm, Mm. you know, it's like, it's all hierarchy language. Mm. And then like, how do you, if you're a, if you're a, a black person who has a history of slavery, how do you hear those words? Mm. If you're an orphan, how do you hear those words? Mm. You're hearing who you've been in worship lyrics that is looking down on that. And and so it's not even that they're explicitly out there saying God damn you to people, which a lot of times they are, but it's even just, it's part of their lens and it shows up in something as simple as an inspirational worship lyric. Well, the way Al Mohler and, and others have just uh, totally dismissed and rejected Andy Stanley in the way they did and the way they, they, they did Rob Bell, it's it just kind of in character. As, uh, as you pointed out, it's, uh, it's the Jesus and John Wayne world that we learned about from Kristen Dumay. Hey, you, you ran into Mike Phillips. He used to be a pastor, but now he's a sex and trauma therapist. What did you learn from him? Yeah, so he he wrote a lengthy piece, and and that's about sexuality in the Bible. And it's interesting because a lot of the, the assumption that a lot of these guys talk about, like Moeller and them, are you know that there is this thing called biblical sexuality, and it's between one man and one woman in marriage for life. And there's you know, and and literally nothing, including you know, masturbation, is is on the table, and hmm. so. Basically, like what uh, what Mike Phillips did is he wrote this piece where he showed how culturally situated the sexuality in the Bible actually was, and how it was informed by ancient Near Eastern culture, how it evolved with Greco-Roman culture, and and different things like that. And and so to me, it was it, it's it's very beneficial to look at that, and 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 to feel like, okay, I'm not just, it's not as simple as I'm walking away from the Bible and rejecting God. Like the picture in the Bible is a lot more complex than what these men have said. And so I can feel free to explore that picture and, and see how culturally situated a lot of biblical sexuality was. And, and then I think it's freeing to today's 
people, even today's Christians, it could be freeing to, because it's it's helping them, it's freeing them of the guilt of walking away from a monovocal biblical view that simply doesn't exist in the Bible. You're here. You're here. Hey, you know, you, you got into the, you know, the exchange between Andy Stanley and Al Mohler, and one of the things they argued about is whether Jesus drew circle circles or Jesus drew lines. Tell, tell us a little bit about what that, that whole discussion was about. Yeah, so Andy, in his sermon after the conference, um, the LGBTQ conference, he talked about we don't draw lines, we draw circles. And it, it seemed from what he was saying what he is that he was trying to um, draw circles around people to include them in a conversation, was my yes. understanding. And, and what these non-affirming men do is they draw lines. You're over there, I'm over here. And so... Moeller and a lot of conservatives came back and said, well, okay, well, Jesus did both. He drew lines and he mm. drew circles. Mm. And I think, I think this is one of those situations where um, I think it's, I think Moeller does have a point in that, that Jesus did draw lines and circles. You know, you can't, you can't, you can't really read apocalyptic literature without seeing lines between sheep and goats. And, um, and I think a lot of the, the lines that Jesus was, was drawing was really in how you treat one another and how you treat mm. the least of these. They were not excuses to exile LGBTQ people. Yeah, and it looks to me like Andy, Andy and I, I, this is what drew me to him uh, from the start. He's, he, he's done a lot of things that have broken the mold of the evangelical world that we grew up in. Um, but now he really is working towards uh, inclusion. Uh, I think he's got a little ways to go, but he's working on it. Uh, and uh, and he's willing to take some hits. But these debates between these guys over theology are just so silly, lines yeah. and circles. You know, I, I, um, I got to tell you, Rick, that, uh, you know, for me uh, and Carolyn and I, you know, we, we pretty much remember when uh, the spell was broken for us. And and where we just had to drop this uh, this business of targeting LGBTQ as 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 we had learned to do in the church, I'm very sad to say. Uh, and it had to do with a close encounter with a woman who lost her son, 27 years old, to what was really a suicide because it just wasn't working. They sent him off to reparative therapy, and and you know those stories. And when we had a close encounter with somebody who had been right there, it was Carol and I had to look at each other and go, what, what have we been thinking? What have we been saying? And then, um, and then other relationships have opened up, including my friend, Ken Fong, who's uh, been a challenge to me on this whole score. What was it for you, Rick, that kind of broke, I, I, I'm using the phrase broke the spell yeah. of, in reference to LGBTQ. Yeah. So that was always, you know, it was always told to me as I began my deconstruction that that was going to be the last thing to go, you know, and it was like, um, and even, even as an evangelical, it was always seen as, as the, like, you know, the final sin God gives you over to a reprobate mind, you know, and, and basically like, so I would, I would go in and my theology I had based 
off of my understanding of Romans 1 was that these people were unthankful and that they were so full of themselves that they would look in the mirror and say, I am sexually attracted to myself, to my wow. gender. That's what I was taught from the pulpit, you know, and, and, and so that was my understanding of these people. And then I spent um, 20 years in the cleaning industry. And as I was beginning to deconstruct a lot of my faith, I was doing a lot of retail work, work in retail stores. And a lot of the people there were gay men. And by far, over the period of about five years, my kindest, most self-giving customers were gay men. Mm. And I couldn't square that with my categorization of them from Romans 1. Mm. Like, the the heterosexual customers were the ones who were mean to me, who treated me like, you know, just the janitor. Yeah, I even had one one lady one time said, who do you think, she was talking to one of her employees, and she said, who do you think I am, the janitor? And I was standing right there, wow. and I said, no, that's me. And she mm. she turned around and looked like she'd seen a ghost, you know. But <laughs> the, the gay men never treated me like that. They were always mm. very kind. And so... You know, over time, it was their love for me and their care for me and their their spiritual health that led me to realize that my scripts about them were false. Yeah, you know, I <clears throat> my friend just got uh, called out by a, 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 a preacher on Sunday morning uh, and called out as an apostate and a, a wolf in sheep's clothing because he's affirming as a former pastor. He's retired now. I... <laughs> I, I ended up writing a letter to the guy, but I, but I did say in the letter, oh, you know, what is it about a book that is 2,000 years old that was written by a guy who was trying to sort, you know, by several people, a whole lot of people, you know, who are just trying to figure things out. And we, you know, we read those lines and we take them as normative for the way we're supposed to live today. I mean, we're... Yeah, where did that come from? And I'm, I still, I, I will admit, I struggle with that. And, and, uh, you, well, you especially when you realize how how like patriarchal the culture was, and how you know yes. women were were it was marriage was not two people going on some dates at a coffee shop and then the guy getting on one knee and proposing, like you know this was an exchange of of property, and that affects yes even how things like adultery are talked about in very subtle ways in the Hebrew mm -hmm. Bible, and so once you start seeing the fingerprints of ancient culture on there, you're like. Okay, um, you know, something's going on here that at least needs to be translated a bit differently to our culture, or it could even be irrelevant in a lot of ways. Adultery would be theft, a violation of my property. That's yeah. the way it would be seen. Yeah, you don't, the 10th commandment, you don't covet your neighbor's donkey or wife or, you know, it's she's listed along his <laughs> possessions. Or in Numbers 31, the you're you're allowed to plunder the virgins in war, but then they're listed amongst, you know, the other possessions as the booty from the war. You know, it's like, oh. I remember this guy describing his wife as his greatest accessory. She was his accessory, yeah. you know, like right in there with the cufflinks, you know, and the, and the uh, 
stiff white collar and tie. Uh, you know what? I want to shift gears a little bit as we wrap up because you've written some other things that I just want to touch on. You've ri- written some really insightful things over this crisis that we're, we're seeing in Palestine right now in Israel. Um, um, you're, um, you're reminding us to pay attention to the Palestinians. And um, uh, just talk a little bit about your perspective on that war. Yeah, and so I think for me personally, my ancestors came from Lebanon. And so just oh, physically, wow, like, yeah. So when I see the, the children on the news, yes. physically, I see, you know, the hair, the skin, the eyes of my kids. Mm-hmm. And, and it feels very personal in that way. And, and I think that um, oftentimes what we talk about in a lot of these spiritual conversations are are the, is the need to, to see other people as your neighbor. You know, we, we, yes. we talk in, in other language, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans, the Israelis and the Palestinians. But it's important no matter the what binary. differences. Yeah, whatever differences we have, which are serious and strong, it's important to see the humanity of your neighbor and and to see their wonders, to see their, their wounds. And, and, and in my first, well, in one of the articles I wrote about the controversy was basically saying, but also let's notice our common passion for retributive violence. And, um, and let's look at how, you know, we condemn Palestinian, you know, like we condemn Hamas for their violence, or we condemn Israel for their violence. Well, we actually do a lot of excusing of violence and celebrating of violence ourselves. And so um, in one of my articles, I, I went through the way we just, handled the ex- conquest ex- narratives. Ex- excuse me, Rick, just define yeah. retribu- retributive violence for us. Yeah. So, you know, justice to me is how do you make things right when a wrong is done? Repair. And, yeah. And so justice to me is restorative. You know, if, if um, if I, you steal something from me, um, justice would be returning it to me, and then us working on our relationship together to where there's not that rift there. Whereas um, retributive justice would be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you, and and so you see that played out. That's conservative evangelical theology. You hurt the honor of God. God's going to torture your body. Um, that's retributive justice. And, and so the way we talk about these things like the cross or talk about the conquest narratives in the Hebrew Bible, they all have implications for how we view the current crisis in the Middle East. And I think that if we're going to critique anybody on the other side of the planet for their thirst for violence, we need to be able to recognize our own thirst for violence. I think you probably have had some uh, done some deconstruction in this arena as well, because as I understand your background, uh, you grow you grew up with end times prophecy and left behind culture and Book of Revelation and Israel, uh, the emergence of the nation Israel is a sign that this is the end times and Jesus is going to return. Um, have you had uh, kind of a turning point on all of that? Yeah, so I in the 1990s especially, um, I grew up at, in middle Georgia, and we actually had these Civil War reenactments across the street. 
And so during class, we'd be hearing bombs going off and, you know, guns shooting. And and we were very Christian nationalist, and um, we were very afraid of the Democrats. And, you know, Bill Clinton was going to hand the United States over to the United Nations and um, and then the the tribulation was going to happen where you'd get your your head chopped off if you didn't accept the mark and all that kind of stuff and so yeah there was there was a lot of fear for really most of my life of these Democrats wanting to chop Christians head, heads off supposedly so oh my gosh yeah so uh you broke out of that and it, it just tell us a little bit how you were how you managed to do it because you're you're looking at this conflict now that's unfolding right before our eyes in a very different way yeah so i when it comes to the end times um once it didn't happen in 2000 with y2k i kind of calmed down a bit especially when I didn't have the angst of I have to get married before the rapture, you know? Um, so then I kind of was like, ah, it doesn't really matter to me as much anymore how it ends up as long as Jesus wins, you know? Um, but then I still had the Jesus wins by torturing the rest of the planet thing going on, you mm. know? So really, my... Uh, in 2015, 2016, 17, that's when I started deconstructing my theology... And I deconstructed enough once Trump ran in 2016 to not vote Republican for the first time. But I, could, I couldn't imagine voting for a Democrat. So I voted third party that year. And, and really just seeing the Trump presidency over the next few years after that, I started noticing how the theological concerns I had about retributive violence were politically being lived out by Trump and his followers. Mm. And so for me, the politics came later after the theology. Um, and, and I know a lot of people say, I've heard some people say that deconstruction is basically just Republicans becoming Democrats. For me, that's not what it was. It was a spiritual journey that had theological implications. And eventually the politics I started realizing was the embodiment of a lot of the theology and the power dynamics that that I had been living out of for years. Well, we need to wrap up. Uh, I'm so grateful for your time, Rick. And already I'm thinking, okay, we need to get together again <laughs> because you wrote a great uh, piece on prosperity gospel and you unpack a little bit more this whole idea of retributive theology. It's, uh, you know, you punch me in the nose, I'm going to break your face. And, and when I, as I think about it, that is, is so much the essence of, uh, you know, what a lot of people think it means to be a Christian, is to be out there uh, uh, following a Jesus who's going to beat you up. Yeah. Uh, wow. If not now, well, listen, later. We, yeah, there you go. Well, listen, Rick, uh, tell, tell our folks where we can find you. I know you've got a new book coming out. It's a children's book. Tell us just a little bit about that one. Um, yeah, so I actually have a children's book that I, I wrote, and then I was going to release it, but then, you know, it was kind of a downer point. My wife ended up getting cancer, and so we ended up pulling that at that point. Um, but um, I'm going to put it out again at some point. She's she's healed now, thankfully. That Is uh, she okay? 
yeah, yeah, she's. Oh man, she's I'm so that, sorry so. to hear that. Well, I'm, but I'm pleased to know that you got yeah. on top of it and got ahead. Yeah, of it. yeah, definitely. So, so at some wow. point, I need to revisit that, but it's kind of been on the back burner as far as that goes. Um, but I've got a, I've got a number of book ideas uh, right now. I'm working on too, and then I've got. Um, you can go to my website, rickpitcock.com. I also recently started a Substack so that I can send my articles to people's emails, and I think that's rickpitcock.substack.com. Nice. Or substack.com slash rickpitcock. I don't know. I don't remember how it works, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think it's rickpitcock at substack.com. The reason I know is because I've got one, too. And, you yeah. know, we're going to put links to all of that, to your website, and also uh, it is just so interesting. I think, uh, you know, uh, uh, BNG has done a nice job of compiling all of your articles together in one place and we'll put a list to that so people can scroll down and see the breadth of the issues that you've addressed and the things that you're writing. You're doing great work, Rick. And I want to thank you for taking time on my podcast today. This has been really interesting and informative. I think our people have, got, have learned a great deal from it. And, and most important, people who are going through this struggle just don't feel alone you're not alone we're in this together yeah definitely i appreciate you having me good deal have a great day rick then that's a wrap for season four and episode 64 of the beached white male podcast thanks so much for joining us glad you're here for rick pidcock where we talked about father wounds and andy stanley's critics we also got into some of those views on what's happening in this terrible conflict in the middle east israel going to war with hamas one more time if you're with us for the first time i'm just glad you're here you can learn more about me and our podcast at thebeachwhitemail.com, our website. Make sure you click on the show notes. You'll learn a whole lot more about my friend Rick, and you'll find links to all of his work, including the articles that we talked about today. And for you regulars, thanks for being there, especially you patrons who just keep us going. I'm grateful for you. There's lots more coming up on the podcast, so keep your eye on those alerts. And I'd appreciate it so much if you'd leave a comment, give us a like, and tell your friends. This is how we get the word out and build this community. I want to say thanks to Ben Sound for our soundtrack today. And know that it won't be long before there'll be another podcast in your inbox. And I'll look forward to seeing you then. So until next time, this is Ken Kemp, the beached white male, saying, Be strong, keep healthy, and stay curious. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.